Psalm 61. Let's pray one more time. Father, we pray Your blessing on, on Your Word tonight. It's Your Word, Father, not mine. You have given it to us, and so we take ownership of it, of it with, with joy and expectation. But Father, we open up the Word You gave, Your absolute truth. And we pray You would lead us into the truth, Father. And as I, as I often ask You, Lord, uh, any misunderstanding, any misrepresentation, any misteaching of this, I pray it would be uh, silenced and not heard. I pray only truth would be heard tonight, Father. And only truth will be received in our hearts as guided by Your Holy Spirit. And that as we open Your Word and move through these things, Father, I pray for encouragement and strength and comfort. I pray for a deepening, Father, of our faith and our passion and our love for You. And, and Lord, we enter this time just wanting to be with You. As we sang, better is one day, Lord, in Your courts than a thousand elsewhere. Better is the next hour here, Father, together, spent before You in Your Word than than a thousand in another place. We praise You, Lord Jesus, and we come to You now to hear Your teaching in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 61. David was a lover of God. Among many other things, his military accomplishment, his geopolitical achievement, even his musical ability, David was, bar none, Par excellence, a lover of God. He had a desperate desire to be in constant fellowship with the Lord. Anytime David was outside of fellowship or away even from Jerusalem for a time, his longing would return to that place where his tabernacle was pitched and where the Ark of the Covenant was, where he could worship God as close to God as possible. Now you and I, we worship God as close as possible anytime. Because we are instantaneously in His presence all the time. But, but for David and in those days, they wanted to get to the place where God said He would meet them. Where was that? The place God said, I will meet you there. In, above the what? Above the cherubim on the mercy seat. Right. God told Moses to tell the people, I'll meet you there. The tent of meeting it was called. And so for David and his mindset and the people of Israel, man, to get there, to be there, that was where the presence of God was most fully felt. And it was David's supreme reason for being. Just to love God. And lovers write songs out of emotion. And so the Psalms, as we've talked about many times, should be emotional. And we see the Psalms running the entire gamut of emotion. Psalm 61 begins, and it's called... A psalm for the choir director on a stringed instrument, a psalm of David. Now, our translations say stringed instrument, translating the word correctly, but the word is naginah. And the naginah was an instrument that was played by striking the strings, usually by a small hammer of some sort, similar probably to our hammered dulcimer. And so it was a song where there was striking involved, and that's appropriate because David himself had been hammered. Oh, not... Not like we would think of someone getting hammered today. He had been hammered by his enemies, hammered in his heart. The setting here for Psalm 61 is David's return to Jerusalem. But he's returning to Jerusalem following a horrific situation, Absalom's rebellion. Now Absalom's rebellion, and it comes up many times in the Psalms, you may note that. In fact, it's interesting, there are certain aspects of David's life that seem to yield a lot of music. A lot of poetry. 
Now I'm sure of the 150 psalms, we say 80 plus psalms or so written by David, that he wrote far more songs. He was, he was a great songwriter in his life. But these are the ones God chose. Okay, the psalms, the 150 that are here. God said, I want that and that one and let's place this one. Because if we believe that the Spirit inspired the Word of God, which I do, then we have to believe that the Psalms are chosen, handpicked by the Lord, to be in here. These are the ones God chose. And it's interesting, there are several groupings of these Psalms that happen in the same period in David's life. And the period of Absalom's rebellion had a huge, huge impact on this older King David. And so he wrote much about that. And that's the setting for this this Psalm. Kyle and Delich in their... Commentary, and I sent this out in email earlier this week. They, they write, Hurled out of the land of the Lord in the more limited sense into the country on the other side of the Jordan, David felt only as though he were banished to the extreme corner of the earth. To be driven out of Jerusalem, to flee for his life, as he had to at this point in his life, felt to David, we can only assume, like he had been banished to the far corners of the earth. This comes out in the psalm. Psalm 61, verse 1, he says, Hear my cry, O God. Give heed to my prayer. From the end of the earth, I call to you when my heart is faint. David fled Jerusalem. Now he's returning. And remember, Bible students, when you go to Jerusalem, from any point on the map there in Israel, when you go to Jerusalem, you always go up to Jerusalem. Being the highest point there, with the exception of Mount Hermon, Jerusalem is the high place there, the highest point in Israel. You always go up to Jerusalem. Imagine David crossing back over the Jordan, coming to the foothills of the mountains of Judea, atop which sat Jerusalem and, and David's throne, and the place of his greatest peace and his security and his comfort, the place where the Spirit of the Lord dwelt among above the mercy seat. And David writes, Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. But the rock wasn't Mount Zion. Beautiful in elevation, the joy of the whole earth, Psalm 48.2, David wrote. The rock wasn't Mount Zion. The rock wasn't Mount Moriah, bedrock to David's tabernacle. David cries out, Lead me to the rock that is higher than I, verse 3, for you have been a refuge for me, a tower of strength against the enemy. And for David, as for you and as for me, God is the rock that is higher than I. I love this verse. If there's any verse, I mean, what a standout. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. If you're in a place of toppling and struggle and you feel like you're, you're about to be bowled over, if you're, if you're hurting, if you feel weak, oh Lord, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. David pled this to the Lord. Jesus Christ, my refuge, my tower of strength, my rock. It's beautiful imagery. And David would use that imagery. In fact, he does in this psalm and in many others. uses the imagery of the rock for God many times. Remember, the Hebrew people thought more in terms of word pictures than they did in terms of, well, like the Greek mindset where we, we just want a lot of words. We want explanation. And the Jewish person, rather than trying to explain God, would say, well, God is like a rock. He's a rock. And that would make sense as it it does to you and I as well. But though there's beautiful imagery here, what does it really mean when David says, lead me to the rock that is higher than I? What does that mean to me practically? Because I do live in the West and I do have that Western mindset. How do I apply what this means? Psalm 61 
is not a praise chorus. It's a prayerful cry. This is not a song of worship. It is a cry of the heart. Hear my cry, O God, he starts. Give heed to my prayer. And as I come to the rock that is higher than I, understand this, a couple things to jot down here. Prayer changes my perspective. When I come to the rock higher than I, when I stand upon that rock, when I'm in the place that Jesus is, I see things I would not see otherwise. Simply put, Jesus sees farther than you can see or than I can see. So when I say, lead me to the rock that is higher than I am, saying, Lord, I need your perspective. I need your view, your vision. To see the way you see. We stood upon Mount Precipice there, on the edge of Nazareth, looking out over the valley of Megiddo. And to stand there and to see Megiddo gives you a completely different perspective of Armageddon than just talking about it. We can describe it, we can detail it, we can look at what Scripture says about that final battle there in that valley, but until you stand on Mount Precipice, on that rock looking out over the... I mean, the valley is breathtaking. It's a vast expanse. And it's a change of perspective because you're up high looking down over the whole thing. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. Change my perspective, Lord. Give me the broad view that I so desperately need and so obviously lack. Paul wrote in Romans 8.26, we don't know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And He who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because He intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Now wait a minute. Paul, you're getting me confused. Paul says that the Spirit intercedes for us. Right? But he also says the one who knows what's on the Spirit's mind intercedes for us. Someone else is interceding there in addition to the Spirit. And if you know your Bible at all, you know that other person is Jesus Christ. Down in Romans 8.34, Paul says, Christ Jesus is He who died, yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. So when you pray, get this, when you pray, you're getting double intercession. You're getting the Spirit of God interceding, speaking with words you don't even have to give, giving understanding, bringing your heart to the Lord in a way that you don't even know how to do it. And you have Jesus also interceding, both at the same time, Fantastic. I am led in prayer beyond my limitations to the rock that is higher than I. When you choose to pray to the Lord, something far, vastly greater than you happens in the spirit realm. Jesus interceding. The Spirit interceding to the very mind of Christ. And and you know, we've talked about this. Paul says we have the mind of Christ. What? doesn't mean that we are Christ. Doesn't mean that we are all little gods. There's a scary thought. It means we can think spiritually with his mind. We can call to him for his direction, for his perspective, the rock that is higher than I. My perspective is so limited. Boy, my insight. But Jesus has perfect perspective, seeing all things at once, past, present, future. Immediately, He sees everything. We need that great perspective. And prayer brings me to that. It brings me wisdom from above rather than wisdom from below. 
I've, I've shared this I know many times before. I used to, as a youth pastor, talk to teenagers and, and ask them, why would you, as a 15-year-old teenager, go ask another 15-year-old teenager about matters of sexuality? What makes you think they're going to know any more than you know yourself? <laughs> but expand that. Why do we rely so much on human wisdom? Why do we look to other human beings and say, Andy, can you explain this to me? And Andy may give me a good answer, but, but why should he know any more than I know? We're both humans. But Jesus, in his perfect, higher perspective, knows everything and gives us wisdom, James says, that is from above. James 4.17, the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering and without hypocrisy. And prayer brings me into that perspective, to the rock that is higher than I. Second thing prayer does is prayer closes the gap. As we read through this prayerful cry of David, we see that prayer closes the gap. What do you mean, closes the gap? Prayer closes the presence gap. And what I mean by that, well, let me explain this way. This last weekend, we dropped off my little girl at college. Why didn't any of you tell me that I was riding my bike straight for a brick wall? I had no idea. I never knew I could miss Hannah so much so quickly. The little dork, I didn't know. I was telling Tom, I used to be walking down here Wednesday nights and Sunday, I used to come down here by myself and it was my quiet time with the Lord and I walked down and then Hannah joined the worship team and then she started walking down with me and it was all the way down here and I'm like, shut up Hannah, I'm trying to pray, you know. But then I got used to her. And tonight the walk down was mighty quiet. And I realized that, boy, we got home and I just broke. She's gone. And it will never be the same. And then she called Monday night at 11.30 p.m. college time just to say hi. And the presence gap closed. She was present. Since Monday night, I think she's called about 27 times with different issues and needs and problems. And it's great. Because I just want to be with her. The presence gap closes. When we pray, it closes the presence gap. Now, God is present. Listen, He's present in you, with you, beside you, next to you. You know, His Spirit is is upon you and within. But in our flesh, we're not always aware of His presence. Prayer draws me into full awareness of His presence. That gap closes. And I'm right there with Him again. Verse 4, David says, Let me dwell in your tent forever. Let me take refuge in the shelter of your wings. The word dwell in the Hebrew there is gur. G-U-R, gur. It's where the name Gershom comes from. Gershom, son of Moses. What does Gershom mean? It means sojourner. And so the word gur means to sojourn, or more literally, it means to dwell as an overnight guest. Listen to what David says. Let me dwell in your tent forever. Let me be as a guest in your tent forever. Now you need to hear, this is shocking. What David wrote, absolutely shocking. He wants to rest as a guest in the tabernacle. And not just the tabernacle, as if it were some kind of godly guest house, you know. He wants to rest in the Holy of Holies. 
Nobody does that. The high priest, once a year on Yom Kippur, would enter into the Holy of Holies to offer that annual sacrifice. And they tied a rope around his ankle. You all know, because if he did it wrong and died, they could pull him out. And David says, that's where I want to bed down. That's where I want to be a guest. David, this is not the Ramada Inn. The Holy of Holies. This isn't even like the Lincoln bedroom at the White House. Where various and sundry guests have stayed overnight. The high priest couldn't even stay here. And for David to say, let me dwell, let me girl, let me, let me be a guest in your tent. He's talking about the tabernacle and more so the Holy of Holies. He wants to show it. That would blow gang, the legalistic, religiously minded person right out of the church door. You don't do that, David. Well, maybe we can dial it down. Maybe David's not talking about the inner court of the tabernacle, the Holy of Holies. Maybe he's talking about the outer court. Well, notice what he says at the end of verse 4. Let me take refuge in the shelter of your wings. The wings of the cherubim spread over the mercy seat. Every time David talks about the shelter of your wings in the Psalms and track this, he's talking about the mercy seat on top of the Ark of the Covenant. I want to dwell in your tent, your tabernacle, forever. As a guest, let me take refuge in the shelter of your wings, there at the mercy seat itself. David says, I want to be there. Why would you say that, David? Because David wants to be as close as possible. Prayer closes the presence gap. I'll meet with you there, God said, where the blood was sprinkled, where forgiveness was available and mercy was offered. So so what is David saying? Lead me to the rock that is higher than I, right into the Holy of Holies. Let me reside there. Let me rest there. David, he loved God so much, he had a way of seeing beyond what normal man would see. Beyond religious observance to the closing of the gap between God and man, and it's a gap that you know and I know God would eventually shut off himself, completely closed down. It's a gap that would no longer exist. When did that happen? Mark 15, verse 37, Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last, and the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. As we've said before, open house. And now the guest house is open. And now you have direct access to the Father by the blood of Jesus. Hebrews 10.19 Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which He inaugurated for us through the veil, that is, His flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. God closed the presence gap in Christ Jesus so that just as David prayed, we may sojourn in His presence. We may be guests in His presence now and then when we will no longer be guests. Watch this, verse 5 going on. David says, For you have heard my vows, O God. You have given me the inheritance of those who fear your name. You will prolong the king's life. Literally, you will add days to the king's days, is what that says. His years will be as many generations. He will abide before God forever. Appoint loving kindness and truth that they may preserve Him. So I will sing praise to Your name forever that I may pay my vows day by day. Third thing to note about prayer. Prayer conveys a prosperous peace. 
Prayer conveys a prosperous peace. Notice in verse 5, he says, You've heard my vows, and you've given me an inheritance. And then down in verse 8, he says, That I, I will sing, your praise, sing praise to your name forever, that I may pay my vows day by day. David is talking about a place of trust in the Lord, such that you have absolute peace in paying your vows. Your tithes, your offerings your gifts to the Lord. That you don't stress about it. You don't worry about it. Where do you get that? Well, verse 8, the word pay, interesting, is the word shalom. It's an offshoot of the word shalom, which means peace, but shalom means a covenant of peace and literally paying peacefully. To be able to keep my vows peacefully. Why wouldn't you keep your vows peacefully? Well, you know... It's tithing time and you've gotten a check, but you're looking at the checkbook and <laughs> this is not working. And I could use that. Rather than, you know, I mean, could we just, Lord, this for this month, put it back. Because I need it. And David says, you know, if you will pray about this, it will convey a prosperous peace. You will recognize, you will remember, you will recall, God's going to take care of you. He'll meet your needs. That's what tithing is about. It's an act of faith. It's not about, you know, stuffing the church coffers. It's about you and the Lord and Him saying, how far are you willing to trust Me? Psalm 34, verse 9. Remember this, O fear the Lord, you His saints, for those who fear Him, there is no want. Fear the Lord. Trust Him. 2 Corinthians 9, 8. Paul said, God's able to make all grace abound to you so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. You will be enriched in everything for all liberality, which through us is producing thanksgiving to God. So I'll just ask one question and we'll move on. Do you believe Him? Do you believe God for His promise to take care of you? Well, prayer will take you to that place, conveying a prosperous peace. Number four, prayer claims a permanent residence. Now note this. Remember, David says, I want to dwell, uh, overnight guest. I want to stay there in the Holy of Holies, in that place with you. And now in verse 7 he says, He will abide before God forever. Abide? Yeah, the word means settle in. He'll settle in. A permanent residence. Jashab to inhabit or settle in to stay is the meaning of that word. And David now lays claim to a permanent residence. Uh, From a sojourning guest in the tabernacle, which is in some ways a picture of you and I today, of you and me, now sojourning guests in, in the tabernacle. We're in the presence of God. We are sojourners. We're guests with His Spirit in this life, but the day is coming where we will move to our permanent residence to settled children before God God eternally. And that's what David desires. This prophet king, he even declares the requirement for a reservation to that place. There's a requirement? Yeah. Now you want to get in. You want to have a room reserved in heaven, in the place prepared for you, there is an absolute requirement for you. God must first appoint loving kindness and truth. Verse 7, that they may preserve Him. You don't walk in on your own strength. 
You don't walk in and flash around what money you've got. Hey, I can, can I just get a room now? No. God has to appoint loving kindness, chesed, grace, and truth. I find that amazing because John tells us in John 1.17 that grace and truth are realized through Jesus Christ. That God would appoint grace and truth. And God did in sending Jesus to open up that reservation for us eternally. The rock that is higher than I invites me to sojourn by His Spirit now and settle in with Jesus then forever. Now going on to Psalm 62. It's for the choir director according to Yejetun, a psalm of David. Yejetun means praising, but Yejetun is a person. He was one of three chief musicians who were appointed by David. And you can read about him back in uh, 1 Chronicles 25. So apparently, Yejitun, David wanted Yejitun to arrange this psalm. Yejitun, you're in charge. I want, I want one of your arrangements because I like the way you groove. Okay? First Chronicles 25 tells us about this man. It says, David, and note this, and the commanders of the army set apart for the service some of the sons of Asaph and of Haman and of Yejitun who were to prophesy with lyres, harps, and cymbals. 1 Chronicles 25.3 says, Yejitun prophesied in giving thanks and praising the Lord. But, but I said note this. It was David and the commanders of the army who set apart these temple musicians. The commanders of the army did that? Why were they involved in this? Because in David's time, the musical service of worship was more highly regarded than the military service of war. For David, worship took preeminence, took precedence even over the fighting of battles. And I say that with deepest respect for our military. But David would say, worship first. Let's set these guys apart. Come on. And Asaph and and Yejitun and, and their sons, set them apart. I don't want them in the battlefield. I don't want them fighting. I don't want them in the army. I want them right there at the temple leading in constant worship. So when there is fighting going on, we are focused on the one who brings us victory in the first place. Now, you could say Psalm 62 is the only psalm. It's the only psalm of the 150 because the word only is used five times in 12 verses. Watch this, verse 1. My soul waits in silence for God only. From Him is my salvation. He only is my rock. And my salvation, my stronghold, I shall not be greatly shaken. Now again, this psalm is is coupled up. It's, It's in this bunch. It's likely written during David's exile from Jerusalem and the treachery of Absalom. David writes as he's out of his cedar palaces and into the stony caves of the Judean desert. And so this God is my rock theme appears a lot because he's surrounded by rock. And as David prays and thinks about the Lord and he sees these word pictures, he says, yeah, a rock is a good description of God who is faithful and solid, who stands up, who is immovable. Verse 3, he says, How long will you assail a man that you may murder him, all of you, like a leaning wall, like a tottering fence? They have counseled only to thrust him down from his high position. They delight in falsehood. They bless with their mouth, but inwardly they curse. David says, these are what my enemies are all about. And David describes himself here as a leaning wall, a tottering fence. He says, that's me. 
He's a man buffeted and, and battered by his enemies who are trying to knock him down. But David, and the imagery is fantastic here. He says, even though I'm tottering, you know, even though I, I, I'm, I'm weak here, David is assured that he will absolutely not topple over or fall. He knows he's not going down. It's an absolute certainty with David. Why? Because though he is a tottering, leaning wall, he is embedded in the rock that is his strength, that is his established strength. You know why absolute truth is so important? We hammer away at this and bring up absolute truth all the time because absolute truth stands up to the test of time. You can say today, no, that's just not the way it is. What the Bible teaches is is false or is off. Culture has changed and the Bible just hasn't caught up. You can say that, but I guarantee you, you will be proven wrong because absolute truth stands the test of time. Absolute truth stands up to the trials of deceit. Those who would lie who would make a mockery of God's Word in their behavior, in their actions, in their belief system. Okay, absolute truth stands up to that. It stands up to the teachers of relativity who say, you've got what you believe, I have what I believe, and let's just all, you know, whatever you believe is fine. No, there's only one truth. And the Word of God is it. Psalm 62, verse 5 Continuing on, says, My soul, wait in silence for God only. For my hope is from Him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my stronghold. <laughs> this tottering fence says, I shall not be shaken. On God my salvation and my glory rest, the rock of my strength. My refuge is in God. Gang, my refuge is not my faith. And my strength and well-being is not my righteousness and my attendance at Bible study or church. My rock and refuge is my God who is unchanging. He is solid and absolute. This last weekend we were at a parent conference. One of the many things they had going on there at Whitworth University. And an academic advisor uh, stood up and was sharing with the parents and talking about what they, what they were going to be doing with the kids and what was important. And, and, and she shared, you know, between the ages of about 18 and 25, this period of life, one of the important places to, to work out faith is in the area of ambiguity. Because up till the age of 18... You know, pretty much everything was black and white. It's what mom and dad taught. It's what you believe or whatever. You know, you, you, you're pretty sure of things. But suddenly you get to an age where you start to question things. And, and she talked about that they enjoy wrestling with ambiguity. And I looked at Sharon and I went, do we want to leave Hannah here? <laughs> I talked to her later and I know where she's coming from, this advisor. And it, it's all good. But academia loves ambiguity. Have you noticed that? Just love to float out there in the relative, you know, multiple solutions, many different answers, and that's fine when you're talking about math, you know, or science. You're, you're trying to find different ways to the same conclusion, or, or human philosophy, maybe literature. What did the author mean? Oh, he could have meant many things, and that's absolutely true. But contrary to popular postmodern thought, faith is not ambiguous. 
Faith is in the rock that is higher than I. Faith is in absolute truth. My faith is grounded in the truth that is Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever. And that's not ambiguous. And I'll tell you something, our 18 to 25 year olds, I believe, need more than anything else is absolute certainty and absolute truth. That's what needs to be taught. I think uh, our daughters are going to be okay, James. But, uh, John 8.31, Jesus said, If you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you will know the truth. And the truth will make you free. And later on, Jesus said in John 14.6, I am the truth. By the way, this is going to lead you in truth, but guess where that truth is? It's right here. It's me. Not me, Pastor Rick. Me, Jesus, speaking. Stand in His absolute truth, and like David, you will be unshakable. Now, ever the shepherd of Israel, David turns his attention from his own heart to his people in verse 8. He says, Trust in Him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before Him. God is a refuge for us. One more thing to add to your list of prayer from the previous psalm. Prayer confirms a practiced faith. Prayer confirms a practiced faith. In other words, the more I pray, the more I pour out my heart, the more confident in God, my rock, and my refuge I will be. The Lord invites us to consistency and constancy in prayer, not because He needs to hear from us as much as because we need to be speaking to Him. And the more we practice our prayer life, the more we practice praying to the Father, the stronger the faith gets. God knows that's a dynamic. That's how it works. Let me say a word about practice here because it can almost sound unspiritual. You know, it can almost sound like a rehearsed religion, but practicing all aspects of our faith is not a rehearsed thing. Practice. It's not an unspiritual thing. We gather every other Thursday night, the worship team right here in the barn, and we practice. And we go through the songs that we're going to worship with on Sunday at least a couple of times through. And as we go through those songs, and Galen, you know this, we have a great time, we enjoy it, but we have to stop sometimes and go, you know, that's not the right chord. Or, or Galen and I will talk, you know, can you, what you're doing there is cool, but can you try this beat? Or, or, or Galen will say, hey, what if we double this? And, and this is going on. We're rehearsing. And we're worshiping. But we're rehearsing. And some have even said, I don't like rehearsal. And my response is, you know what, we rehearse then so that when we come in here on Sunday morning... We're not thinking about the music. We're thinking about the Father. And it's the same thing in our faith that we practice prayer. We practice. You're you're practicing your faith right now as you're in the Word of God. And as we practice these things and we rehearse our relationship again and again with the Father, suddenly it's not rehearsal anymore. Suddenly it's just worship. We're used to Him. We hear Him. We know Him. Paul says, be anxious for nothing, Philippians 4, verse 6. But in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now David continues to encourage the congregation in this. He says in verse 9, men of low degree are only vanity, and men of rank are a lie. In other words, the low and the high are both a lie. He says, in the balances they go up, they are together lighter than breath. The idea that one man is any better than the next 
especially based on positions and titles and paychecks, is utterly and absolutely bogus. It's just not true. Now, we as as believers in Jesus and as Christians and as most of the time good people, we would agree with that. We'd say, of course, of course a position in the workplace doesn't make you a better person. And yet, don't we act like it does? Don't we kind of take notice when we recognize someone who's a little better off than we are or maybe makes a little bit more money or has a higher title than, than perhaps I do? David says, don't, don't get fooled. That's, that is stinking human thinking. Don't get fooled by that. There is no... What does stinking human thinking mean? I'll explain when we get home. That's just wrong thinking. <laughs> low lives. David says low lives like Shimei. You know, Shimei, the one who ran along the ridge and threw dust at David and cursed him as he's leaving Jerusalem. Low lives like that are of no account. But David says high-ranking officials like Ahithophel, who betrayed him, are also of no account. You can't trust the people in low places. You can't trust the people in high places. Truly, you can only really trust God because everyone else is capable of betrayal and treachery, including me. God alone is a rock. Verse 10, David says, Do not trust in oppression and do not vainly hope in robbery. If riches increase, do not set your heart upon them. Three things right there you can't trust. Might, men, and money. You can't trust any of that. They all go away. But, verse 11, once God has spoken, twice I have heard this, which in Hebrew poetry is a way of saying, listen up, that power belongs to God. And loving kindness is yours, O Lord. And for you recompense a man according to his work. Have you heard that before? You recompense a man according to his work. Jesus said it twice. Matthew 16.27, Jesus said, The Son of Man is going to come in the glory of His Father with His angels and will then repay or recompense every man according to his deeds. And then in Revelation 22.12, Jesus said, Behold, I am coming quickly and my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. You might say, well, wow, how does that square with grace? Well, notice the context of recompense in verse 12 there is grace. Loving kindness is yours, O Lord, for you recompense a man according to his work. The context is grace. God's loving kindness. Without the context of grace, the recompense of God is a terrifying prospect. But in the context of His grace, the recompense of God turns into gifts and rewards given. Jesus says, I'm coming and my reward's with me. And if you are saved by grace, then guess what? You have a recompense coming. According to your deeds, according to how you've lived your life in Christ Jesus, there are rewards, there are gifts for you in His grace. If you stand outside of grace, His recompense is a very different thing. They came to Jesus... They came asking Him, what shall we do so that we may work the works of God? The Jewish people there who He was teaching in John chapter 6, to work the works. I mean, they're talking to plurality. There's got to be lots of stuff we have to do, so give us the list. And Jesus responds, this is the work, singular, 
This is the work of God that you believe in Him whom He has sent. The context of grace. Loving kindness. Now, Psalm 63 remains in the same setting, which is, again, why these psalms are bundled together. David betrayed, having fled to the dry, barren wilderness wastes of Judea. Verse 1. O God, You are my God, and I shall seek You earnestly. My soul thirsts for You, my flesh yearns for You in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Thus I have seen You in the sanctuary to see Your power and Your glory because Your loving kindness is better than life. My lips will praise You. So I will bless You as long as I live. I will lift up my hands in Your name. My soul is satisfied as with marrow and fatness And my mouth offers praises with joyful lips. By the way, my soul is satisfied with marrow and fatness. I never understood that until Anna Marie came home. You know that? You should watch this girl eat a chicken bone. It is astounding. She knows how to get every last bit of chicken off that until there's nothing left, even to going after the marrow. I kid you not. It's an amazing thing. I will never do it. But it says here, my soul is satisfied as with marrow and fatness, as with the best of the best, all of, all of the meat, all that you have for me, David says. Remember, he's in a dry, barren place where there is no water and there is no food and it's, it's not a good place to be, but he's saying this. When I remember you, verse 6, on my bed, I meditate on you in the night watches. For you have been my help. And in the shadow of your wings I sing for joy. My soul clings to you. My right hand, your right hand, upholds me. But those who seek my life to destroy it will go into the depths of the earth. They will be delivered over to the power of the sword. They will be a prey for foxes. But the king will rejoice in God. Everyone who swears by him will glory. For the mouths of those who speak lies will be stopped. David's there. And he turns over on his bedroll in the starry Judean night. And a great peace settles over him. In the midst of all this Absalomic treachery, this horrible stuff going on, booted out of his kingdom, he lies there and and he writes this psalm. And he's able to do it. This peace settles over him because he's lying there thinking about the Lord. He's not thinking about his problems. He's not thinking about his life issues or his relationship struggles or what this person did to him or that person was doing to him. He just started thinking about the Lord. And the more David thought about the Lord, the more joy came into his heart. What do you do when you are in the dry, arid desert place where it feels like people are against you, where the place of your security has been shaken? What do you do? Three quick suggestions here from this psalm. Number one, seek God early. Seek God early. Verse one says, O God, you are my God, I shall seek you earnestly. But the word earnestly is literally translated early. O God, you are my God, I shall seek you early. We sing the song, O God, you are my God, and I will ever praise you. I will seek you in the morning. Earnestly means early. David was an early riser with the Lord. Well, how do you know that? Well, he said he was. Psalm 57, verse 8. Awake, my glory. Awake, harp and lyre. I will awaken the dawn. What do you mean, David? It means I'm getting up before the sun, so as the sun comes up, I'm going to sing it into place. 
I'm going to awaken the dawn with the praises of the Lord who brings the dawn. Psalm 108 verse 2, Awake, harp and lyre. Again, I will awaken the dawn, David says. And in Psalm 119, 147, he says, I rise before dawn and cry for help. I wait for your words. Seek God early. Man, start the day with Jesus. And we've talked about this recently, but I, just to remind you, start the day with the Lord. Get up with Jesus. When it's quiet. Get up with Jesus. By the way, He's an early riser too. In fact, He'll be up waiting for you when you get up. Because the Bible tells us He never sleeps. He never slumbers. He's always keeping watch over His people. Seek God early. Jesus, we're told, Mark 1.35, in the early morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up and left the house and went away to a secluded place and was praying there. Best time of day. Seek God early. Secondly, seek God late or seek God at evening. Verse 6, David's talking about this. When I remember you on my bed, I meditate on you in the night watches. Can I ask a question here? What do you watch at night? What are your night watches? David says, Well, I meditate on you in the night watches. I'm watching to see what God is doing. I'm thinking about your word. I'm just thinking about what you did all day long. We started the day together. We're going to end the day together too. In the lateness, in the night watches, I'm thinking about you. What are you watching at night? What if we were to turn our TVs off and our watchfulness on? And I am convicted by this one. Because as my kids know, one of my favorite things to do at the end of the day is just shut off the world, pop on the tube, and sit there and just, you know, a little drool coming down. Those of you who watch Spongebob like Patrick, you know. And yet, what are we watching? What are we pouring into our heads? What's the last thing we're thinking about as we're hitting the pillow at night? The show that we just saw filled with who knows how many immoralities? It's not what David did. I know of a, of a pastor who, who specific. Okay, it was John Corson. John Corson, talking about this very issue, said one evening several years ago, he was watching a show. It came on. It was bad. And he got up and went out into the garage and came back in with an axe and axed his TV in half. And he said the next day he thought maybe that wasn't you know, the best thing to do with the, you know, a little violent there in front of the kids. But the night watches. What are we watching? David says, I meditate on you. How do you meditate on the Lord? Look, don't make it harder than it is. Think about it. To meditate on the Lord is to think about the Lord. To review what He's done. To consider who He is. What have you learned from Him today? What has He taught you today? What struggle did He bring you through victoriously? Has He kept you breathing, kept you alive? How has God been faithful? Getting closer to Jesus, gang, isn't always talking to Him. Sometimes it's just thinking on Him. Just thinking about Him. You know, if I... How do you think I would feel as a husband if I asked Cheryl, what are you thinking about right now, hon? And she said, you. I mean, it happens all the time. But how do you think that would make me as a husband feel? Do you know it's a blessing to the Lord to know that you're just thinking about Him? Psalm 16.7, I will bless the Lord who has counseled me. Indeed, my mind instructs me in the night. 
I bless the Lord. When He is on my mind, when I am mindful of Him, seek God early, seek God in, at evening, and then number three, seek God earnestly. Verse 8 says, My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. My soul clings to you. The Hebrew word for cling there, dabak. And it means to cleave or to be joined to, to follow hard after. Two quick places where that same exact word is used. Genesis 2.24 For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined, cling, cleave unto his wife and they shall become one flesh. And David uses that word. He says, My soul cleaves unto you. Clings to you. In the same way a husband passionately clings to a wife. But there's a beautiful, other enlightening place this same word is used. It's back in the story of Ruth. Ruth is there and and Orpah and Naomi. And you recall the story. Naomi's husband Elimelech dies, so she's a widow. And then Naomi's two sons who are married to Orpah and Ruth, both boys die. Mahlon and and, and Kilion die. And so you've got the three women there, all widows. And Naomi is in Moab because they left Israel because of a famine. She's in Moab there with Ruth, who is a Moabite, and Orpah, not Oprah, Orpah, she's a Moabite. And they're there together and Naomi says, I'm going back to my people. I have nothing here. I'm going back and you need to go back to your people as well. And we're told in Ruth 1.14, just listen to this, they lifted up their voices and wept. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Dabak clung to her. Would not let go of her. She clung. And then she said, Naomi, behold, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and her gods return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or turn back from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God will be my God. Dabak, clinging to Naomi. And clinging so tight, she says, I don't want my old gods. I want your God, Naomi. Orpah, well, she kissed Naomi and went back to her gods. Ruth clung to Naomi and said, Your God shall be my God. What's the difference? Well, Orpah showed respectful affection. She was respectful and affectionate, kissed her mother-in-law and went back to her gods. Ruth showed earnest passion, would not let go. She would not let go. She clung there to Naomi. And when the season is dry and long, when our faith seems to be weak and my heart is tired, all the more reason to seek earnestly, to follow hard after God. Seek Him early. Seek Him at evening. Seek Him earnestly. Which is why David in this horrific dry season of the soul is able to say all that he says and, and ended up saying, my the king will rejoice in God. People of, re- of royalty rejoice in the Lord. And I'm talking about the royal priesthood. We rejoice in the Lord. Psalm 64 has been called the psalm of the poison pen. And it's yet another expose of those who plot evil against the Lord's anointed. Ahithophel, God's trusted counselor. Ahithophel is the one who actually advised Absalom in two areas. 
David's counselor is now advising Absalom, his rebellious, treacherous son, and he tells him two things to do, seduction and destruction. Absalom, here's what you do. Go sleep with David's wives in broad daylight. You see, that's what the nations did. That's what the kings of the other, when they wanted to usurp the throne, they would take the wife or wives or harem of the king and they would sleep with them, thus showing that they now command as opposed to the other guy. Seduction. Besides, you can almost hear Ahithophel thinking in his own mind, saying, Absalom, sleep, sleep with David's wives. Seduce them just as he seduced Bathsheba, who you Bible students know was Ahithophel's granddaughter. No wonder he advised Absalom to do this. No wonder this bitterness in his soul, this seeping long-term bitterness. And Ahithophel said, not just seduction, but destruction. Allow me to gather a group of guys and chase down David and destroy him. I'll do it. This is the background that David writes in Psalm 64, verse 1. Hear my voice, O God, in my complaint. Preserve my life from the dread of the enemy. I like that. He doesn't say preserve my life from the enemy, but from the dread of the enemy. Because fear is one of Satan's most destabilizing tools. If he can cause us to become fearful, we become like David, the tottering fence, you know? And we get worried. And Satan uses it as the, the tool of the terrorist, right? To evoke terror, to bring fear. But David says. Preserve my life from the dread of the enemy, from the fear that he evokes in my life. But remember this from last week. Not only is fear Satan's most destabilizing tool, but fear can also become a great stabilizer of your faith. Depending on who you fear. If you fear the Lord, then your faith is going to get stabilized. If you fear the enemy, it will be a destabilizing factor. Verse 2, he says... Hide me from the secret counsel of evildoers, from the tumult of those who do iniquity, who have sharpened their tongue like a sword, they aimed bitter speech as their arrow, to shoot from concealment at the blameless. Suddenly they shoot at him and do not fear. They hold fast to themselves an evil purpose. They talk of laying snares secretly. They say who can see them. They devise injustices, saying, We are ready with a well-conceived plot. For the inward thought and heart of a man are deep. David's describing all of this. The heart of a man, he says, is deep. The word there is unsearchable. And he's right. For you and for me. The heart of everyone else in this room is unsearchable. I don't know what you're thinking right now. I have no idea what's buzzing around in your brain. What's going on. What's concerning you. What's worrying you. What's, what's holding your attention. I don't know. Because the heart of man, truly for me, as a man, is unsearchable. I cannot plumb your heart. But God can. God can. Isaiah 29.15, the Lord says, Woe to those who deeply hide their plans from the Lord, and whose deeds are done in a dark place. And they say, who sees us? Or who knows us? He says, For the ruthless will come to an end, and the scorner will be finished. Indeed, all who are intent on doing evil will be cut off. Verse 7 says, God will shoot at them with an arrow. And suddenly they will be wounded. So they, that is the arrows, so they will make him stumble. 
Their own tongue is against them. All those who see them will shake the head. Then all men will fear and they will declare the work of God and will consider what He has done. The righteous man will be glad in the Lord and will take refuge in Him. And all the upright in heart will glory. And this is the ultimate backfire of those who would plot evil against the people of God. This is why Paul said, Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. Don't, don't take any vengeance yourself. You leave that up to God. Don't fight back. You let the Lord take care of that. Because the ultimate backfire of those who plot against the righteous is they themselves will be cut off. Now all this is is well and good. But you might say, Rick, we've been the last several weeks looking into bundles of the Psalms and seeing great prophecy of future things. Isn't there some of that for tonight? Is there any of that in here this evening? Well, since you asked, look at verse 9 again. David writes, Then all men will fear, and they will declare the work of God, and will consider what He has done. And the righteous man will be glad in the Lord and will take refuge in Him and all the upright in heart will glory. Gang, this is future tense. And David doesn't just say, then the people of Jerusalem, yeah, then they will fear and declare the work of God. He doesn't say, then my people Israel will fear and declare the work of God. He doesn't say the surrounding nations. He says, all men. This is an all-encompassing statement. I used to read these statements like David was just writing a song and just wanted to declare something big. You know, No. I absolutely believe David is on the threshold here of getting prophetic on us. Of speaking about what is to come. That all those who attempt poisonous attacks against the people of God, and it will ramp up in the last days... It will ramp up in the tribulation. All those who go head to head with the anointed of God will fall. And at that time, all men will fear. All men. And all men, the righteous and the unrighteous, all men will declare the work of God and will consider what He has done. And this leads directly into Psalm 65, which, my friends, is a song for the harvest. He says in verse 1, There will be silence before you, and praise in Zion, O God, and to you the vow will be performed. O you who hear prayer, to you all men come. Literally, to you all flesh. All flesh come. Every prayer is answered. God has responded. The Lord has delivered. This psalm, Psalm 65, speaks of an unparalleled time. Oh, it's harvest time. But it's bigger than that. It speaks of a time when silence is praise. The word silence, the Hebrew word is dumiah, and it means a resigned repose. A silence. It's that time when all flesh, again, believer, unbeliever, righteous, wicked, all people alike will be resigned in silence, worshiping the Lord. That's never happened before. Not a single time in the history of the world has all flesh been silent in worship of God. It's going to happen. The day is coming. And then the vow 
will be performed. What do you mean the vow will be performed? It's the response of a people to the goodness of God. And now every vow, every vow offered to the Lord can be carried out because He has come. And it may be, and I'm just guessing here, so don't, this is not like gospel truth, but I'm thinking thank offerings and peace offerings and sacrifices offered up at the outset of the millennial kingdom. At that time, and by the way, interesting, the prophet Daniel had this to say. Actually, God said this to Daniel in Daniel 12, verse 11. He said, From the time that the regular sacrifice is abolished and the abomination of desolation is set up, there will be 1,290 days. That's three and a half years. That's part of the reason why we believe in that seven-year tribulation. Halfway through, three and a half years in, Antichrist will set up the abomination of desolation. And when that's set up, there's a three and a half year period of time from that point to when it's done. And the Lord says to Daniel, how blessed is he who keeps waiting and attains to the 1,335 days. What? 1,290 days from the abomination of desolation, Antichrist setting himself up to be God, to the conclusion of the tribulation and the outset of the millennial kingdom. But God says, how blessed is the man who extends, who waits, who is waiting and attains to the 1,335 days. That's 45 days further. What's he talking about? 45 days from Jesus' return. 45 days after Jesus comes back and puts down Antichrist. Satan is bound. And the tribulation is over. 45 days, what's going on there? Perhaps, perhaps 45 days are needed for all the worship and offerings and vows and praises that the people are going to be giving to God before the kingdom can get going. It's only a month and a half, folks. Perhaps that whole time will be spent in people paying their vows to the Lord in worship. Verse 3. Iniquities prevail against me. As for our transgressions, you forgive them. How blessed is the one whom you choose and bring near to you to dwell, watch this, to dwell in your courts. We will be satisfied with the goodness of your house, your holy temple. The word dwell there, settle. We're going to settle in now. We're going to abide in your courts, he says. Satisfied with the goodness of your house and your holy temple. Your house is the Hebrew, Vayit. Your, your temple, the Hebrew, Hekal. And they're both words of permanence, gang. Permanent structure. Speaking of a permanent temple. Note this. David wrote it at a time where there was no temple. He wrote it at a time where there was his tabernacle, his tent that he set up, and the Ark of the Covenant was there, and, and the altar, you know, so they, they could sacrifice. But there was no temple built. Remember, David wanted to build a temple. It wouldn't be until later that Solomon built it. And David is talking about this time. And he's saying, we, he's including himself, we will be satisfied with the goodness of your house and your holy temple. We'll dwell there. Shakan is the word. Abide. Right there, Lord. David is dreaming now of, the, of dwelling in the temple courts. And it is, it is something that will be realized. At the outset of the millennial kingdom, Psalm 65, verse 5, going on, By awesome deeds you answer us in righteousness, O God of our salvation. 
You who are the trust, watch this, of all the ends of the earth and of the farthest sea, who establishes the mountains by His strength, being girded with might, who stills the roaring of the seas and the roaring of their waves and the tumult of the people. I like this. Jesus said in Luke 21-25, there will be signs in the sun and the moon and the stars. And on earth, dismay among the nations in perplexity at the roaring of the sea and the waves. When the tsunami hit several years ago, we were in dismay. People were saying, what? 120, 150, how many people were killed? And, and the nations around the, around the world were in dismay. And there will be a greater dismay than that at the roaring of the waves and at the crashing of the seas. But here, in David's psalm, David speaks of a time where they are still. You who still the tumult. Remember, Jesus is the one who calms the storm, right? He's the one who went out on the Galilee and was having a nap. And the storm rose up and they woke Him up and He got up and said, Hush! Enough of that! Shh! And it was completely still. David says that's going to happen. And not just on the Sea of Galilee. The entire world will be stilled and silenced. The tumult of the Sea of Humanity quieted at the coming of Jesus Christ. He says in verse 8, They who dwell in the ends of the earth stand in awe of your signs. You make the dawn and the sunset shout for joy. That'll freak you out. The sun comes up and goes, Hallelujah! I mean, that'd be a little freaky. And David again, he's using these word pictures that he uses, but he's saying this is a day unparalleled. The rising of the sun will bring a great praise, a great joy. And he's saying, by the way, it affects they who dwell at the end of the earth. It's everyone. Again, it's not just Israel. It's the whole world that he's talking about, caught up in this fantastic thing. And gang, he goes on now to use words that will linguistically illustrate a good harvest but literally indicate the Millennial Kingdom. Verse verse 9. You visit the earth and cause it to overflow. You greatly enrich it. Watch this. The stream of God is full of water. You prepare their grain, for thus you prepare the earth. The stream of God, yeah, it's flowing. Zechariah 14.8 tells us from the temple west to the Mediterranean Sea and east to the Dead Sea where it brings life to the Dead Sea and suddenly creatures are living there and people are fishing out there where there's nothing but death right now. From the temple, that stream of God is going to flow. Ezekiel 47 describes it. Remember we talked about it. It starts small and it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. The streams of God is full of water. Verse 10, You water its furrows abundantly. You settle its ridges. Literally, you smooth its ridges. You soften it with showers. You bless it with growth. You have crowned the year with your bounty and your paths drip with fatness. The pastures of the wilderness drip and the hills gird themselves with rejoicing. The meadows are clothed with flocks and the valleys are covered with grain. They shout for joy. Yes, they sing. What? Creation sings. Okay, let me just tell you this real quick. There's another time when creation sings. Want to see it? I love this. Revelation chapter 5. It tells us 
And this is at a time at the outset of the tribulation, so you can imagine what it will be like on earth at that time. The rapture's happened, the church is gone. And people are, are freaked out and trying to figure out what's going on. And at the beginning of that time, Revelation chapter 5 and verse 13. And every created thing which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them I heard saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. Every created thing, the word there in the Greek is katisma. And that word doesn't mean humanity. It means creatures. And John witnesses in the Revelation the creatures of earth in a brief moment standing up and praising God and then they're back to you know chewing the cud or doing whatever they were doing before. Oh, that can't be literal, Rick. Why? Why not? You don't think that's going to happen? I think it's going to. And I think the world is going to freak out. People's dogs are going to jump up and go, Praise the Lord! And then go back to, you know, scratching around. What? I'll tell you one thing. When the world enters the tribulation, this place is going to be different than it has ever been. The spiritual and the physical interacting in a way, as Revelation tells us, that will be astounding. Incredible. People will have no excuse at that time but to know there is a God and either believe in Him or rebel against Him. It'll be a no-holes-barred time of spiritual interaction occurring on planet Earth. Well, back to the psalm, and we'll finish this out. They shout for joy, yes, they sing. Song rising up from creation itself. The millennial kingdom begins with a hushed praise. It ends with shouts of joy in all the earth. And we see these things tonight. Why? Because we have the perspective of the rock that is higher than I. Because He shows us these things. It's His Word, His Spirit that explains it. And it's by His Spirit that we see such a beautiful panorama of praise and paradise. And the Word promises, and the Lord promises, that we with glorified eyes will see it ourselves when His kingdom comes. Oh, glory be, Father, this sounds good to me. And we just rejoice in You. God, I know there are some here tonight who are in a dry season, an arid place, a barren place, struggling to understand what's going on in life. Lord, may they simply turn their thoughts to You and rest in You. I know some others, Father, who are really struggling right now, like tottering fences. And Lord, lead them to the rock that is higher. Many of us, Father, are just in the season of life where we're saying, Lord, what do You have for us next? What are You calling us to? Are You coming tonight? Are You coming tomorrow? Lord, may we live our lives every day knowing that may be the day You come get us. And I pray, Father, that this will move us to be active in this world in service and ministry in love and compassion. And oh, Jesus... While we pray, come quickly. We also pray, use us to your glory for the coming kingdom in Jesus' name. Amen.